Good to see all of you. I do want need to say a word here before I forget that Uncle Lou's going to be out of town a few Sundays coming up. And so if you'd like to help fill the gap uh, while he's out of town taking care of the children's Bible hour, if you'd like to help with that, talk with my wife, talk with Kim about uh, getting plugged in with that uh, good ministry that's uh, ongoing. So <clears throat> again, talk with Kim about that. Turning your Bibles to Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel chapter 18, and uh, while you're turning there, just a brief word about the shirt, right? Sermonator is what the shirt says. This is a gift, uh, shout out to Eddie and Vicki Vargas, I know they're watching, they always watch every Sunday live at home uh, for uh, health reasons uh, as we continue to live in a global pandemic, but I know they're watching, they're the ones got me this shirt, so uh, yeah, representing this morning. So I'm grateful for the gift. Ezekiel chapter 18. Let's start. Let's start with verse one. Ezekiel 18, beginning of verse one. The word of Yahweh came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous, does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idol's of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppose, uh, oppress other anyone, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by, actively, by acting faithfully, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, and takes profit. Shall he live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son, who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes, he shall not die for his father's iniquity, he shall surely live. For as, his father, as for his father, because he practiced extortion, 
robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people. Behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. Let us pray. Lord God, as we have sat and heard your word this morning, now we pray that you would help us to see clearly who you are and what you have done on our behalf through Christ Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen. We talked about this chapter last week and how God is reversing things in Israel. God is undoing the proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. That is, the father sinned and the sons are paying the penalty for it. They're being punished for the father's sin. And Ezekiel chapter 18 is a key chapter in the Bible for developing the doctrine of personal responsibility. The people of Ezekiel's day were disputing the justice of God, and they were blaming their lot on the former generations. And through Ezekiel, Yahweh is setting the record straight that each person is accountable to God for their actions. Last week we talked about how you don't get to blame other people for your sin, and you are accountable to God for your own sin. The soul who sins shall die. And we saw that that individuality is spoken in the context of the corporate identity. O house of Israel, the plural yous, you say this. That includes Ezekiel as well. Today, what we will see through a series of hypotheticals that God is putting forward here. God is speaking hypothetically, giving these, these examples, giving these scenarios. Suppose this were to happen. And he's doing that in order to say, Israel, my people, you are not innocent of sin. You have sinned. And the sooner you realize that, the better off you will be. Because, listen, God is able to work with a humbled sinner who's willing to admit before God Almighty, I am a sinner. He is able to work with that person, whereas on the other hand, the person who is haughty and arrogant and says, I am innocent, I have not sinned, God, God doesn't honor that. He doesn't recognize that. Because really what that is is self-deception. So what are these hypotheticals? Well, they begin in verse 5 with this man who is righteous, this righteous man, and he does what is just and right. So a righteous man, he does what is right, does what is just, just, he shall live. That's the bottom line for this first hypothetical. Hypothetical number one is this righteous man. Man Specifically, and it gets very specific, he abstains from gross idolatry, doesn't go up to the mountain altars, doesn't lift his eyes to the idols, doesn't visit the idols. He is someone who avoids adultery. He maintains ceremonial purity. That's that business about uh, abstaining from sex with a woman Uh, during her time of menstrual impurity. That's a ceremonial thing that's found in the law. The righteous man, he doesn't oppress others. 
He ate champion's justice. He returns that which is pledged. The idea there is of a pawn. Someone had pawned something. He, he, he returns it and doesn't charge at interest when the debt is paid. He doesn't commit violent robbery. He feeds the hungry, clothes the naked. He lends without interest. He abstains from injustice. Instead, he executes true justice between person and person. Honest and fair legal practices are in view there. He is a man who walks in the statutes of God. He keeps the rules of God with faithfulness. Verse 9 says, he is righteous. He shall surely live. And that's the bottom line because God said so. Declares the Lord. This is what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 2. And verse 13, the doers of the law will be justified. This is what the law itself said in Leviticus 18 and verse 5. The one who does them shall live by them. There's just one problem. And every Israelite knew it. Every Israelite knew that this kind of flawless law-keeping was impossible. They just could not do it. There was a curse in the law itself. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, they're under a curse. Centuries later, Paul would affirm, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 2, verse 16. He says in Romans chapter 3, in fact, we keep your finger there in... Ezekiel 18. Let's go ahead and take a peek over there at Romans chapter 3. And just listen to the starting point in Paul's anthropology. The starting point for Paul's doctrine of humanity. Romans 3. And understand, this is on the tail end of a very lengthy exposition where Paul has been saying in chapter 1, all the Gentiles are under the wrath of God because they've all sinned. And all the Jewish people equally are under the wrath of God because they've not kept the law. And so the whole world is under sin. Verse 9, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, let let me prove it to you from Scripture. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their tongues, uh, under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Every Israelite knew there's none who was righteous. In fact, the wise man Solomon, years before Ezekiel, he'd already declared Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There was no righteous Israelite who did right and therefore was righteous. They were all under the curse because they did not do the commandments as prescribed in the law. They did not live according to the law. In fact, contrary to their presumed innocence, 
they were guilty of more sin than their fathers had done. Just go back and read chapter 8 about the abominations that were going on in the temple. We may be tempted to look back on the Israelites in Ezekiel's day and think, I should have known better. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. C.S. Lewis begins his book, Mere Christianity, with two simple points. Number one, there is a law of nature, law of human nature, as he calls it. That is, there are these rules for right and decent behavior, which everyone knows, and you can't get rid of them. And, and you know that they're there because you often insist that others follow that law and those rules. Number two, we also know we don't keep that law ourselves. We often break that law, perhaps even daily. We have this sneaking suspicion that we ourselves are guilty, that we have violated the moral law. And so... Uh, Lewis proves it. He says, look, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Why is it you make excuses when you don't keep a promise? Because you know you broke the law. That law of human nature. All the excuse make. Remember, remember last week, we talked about this. This is that, that, ver, that proverb of the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That was their attempt to get out of their personal responsibility. We're suffering. We're dying down here, but it's not our fault because of what they did in the past. We ourselves, we're innocent of all this. But all that excuse-making and the blame-shifting and the buck-passing and all those attempts to weasel out of personal responsibility, that's all evidence that you know and you know and I know, we all know, there is a law of human nature, a moral law, and we are guilty of breaking it. It is still true. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. Not even one. That is the starting point. Humans are not righteous in and of themselves. This kind of perfect righteousness demanded in the law is foreign to sinners. And that's the point. That's the point. You see, God was pointing to the one that he would provide, make provision for us sinners. Only Christ has achieved the righteousness required under the law. And it is his righteousness that is then given to us. It is counted to us by faith in him. The just shall live by faith. That is the great principle. For any who would live life with God, the just shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Paul says that in Galatians chapter 3. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We might as well read the rest of Romans chapter 8 while we're there. Because that's the high point. That's what the whole argument is driving toward. Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for, let me tell you why, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For, again, let me tell you why, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, 
could not do. I want you to hear that. The law was good, holy, right. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. Nothing wrong with the law. The fault was with us. The fault was with the flesh. By sending his son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We didn't do it, though. Christ did it. The Lord Jesus Christ did it. Uh, fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirement, which is what? Sinless perfection. The righteous requirement has been fulfilled in us, not by us, but in us, by Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So hypothetically speaking, there was no righteous Israelite in Ezekiel's day. In fact, there were more like hypothetical number two, which begins in verse 10. Hypothetical number two is this unrighteous son. An unrighteous son who does evil. He is wicked. He will die. Specifically, he is a violently murderous son who engages in Gross idolatry, adultery. He oppresses the weak and powerless. He violently robs others. He doesn't do justice in business and trading. His idolatry knows no bounds. He commits abomination, the text says. And so he shall not live. He shall surely die. His blood, literally bloods, plural, the innocent blood that he has shed is upon him. He is guilty of his own sins, and just punishment will be visited upon him. Well, if every Israelite knew that this kind of righteousness that was first described in the Father is unattainable, it's impossible in and of themselves, they also knew that this, this description of the unrighteous son, that was true for them. They fit this description. They knew what James would write centuries later, that whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails at one point, has become guilty of all of it. James 2 and verse 10. That's just James reiterating what the law itself had said in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 37. You shall observe all my statutes and all my rules. And again, every Israelite knew. That they were guilty of committing the wicked abominations that God had said not to do. They knew what was going on at the temple. And do we really need to revisit and remind ourselves about chapter 16? Jeez. They knew. They knew. It was all too painfully true. So search your heart this morning. You'll see that you too. If you are not now, you have been in the past a slave of sin, following the passions of lusts, loving your sins, loving darkness more than light, being by nature a child of wrath. These are all biblical descriptions that are used of man in his rebellion. Humans under sin. Humans are sinners, and we commit sin. 
Our blood is upon us unless, unless Christ has borne our sins in His body on the cross. Shall we live? Only because Christ died in our place. That's the only way we'll live. Christ has done what we never could. We were all wicked sons of the righteous Father. Shall we then live? We shall surely die. The soul that sins shall die. There's a law of sin and death. The wages of sin is death. But the righteous Father sends His righteous Son to do what we are unable to do. Perfect submission to the will of God. Perfect obedience to the law. Perfect life given in vicarious death on our behalf. God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And now, thanks to His obedience, even to the point of death on the cross, His blood is upon us. And it forgives us of all of our wickedness, all of our disobedience, all of our rebellion, all of our sin. It's all gone because of the blood of Jesus. But I'm a wicked son. Yeah, but Christ died for you. And all that sin is removed. There's one more hypothetical. Beginning in verse 14. And again, all this is to refute that erroneous proverb. Fathers ate sour grapes and now we're suffering for it as the sons. The son's teeth are set on end. But now suppose that this wicked son fathers a righteous son. The wicked man's son sees the father's disobedience and abandons the father's sin. Does what is just. Does what is right. He shall live. There are actually biblical examples that could be pointed to of this very thing. Josiah, son of Ammon. Hezekiah, son of Ahaz. Those were both good kings who saw the wickedness of their fathers and didn't pursue that course. They abandoned it. They still were imperfect. They still fell short. They still sinned. So what about this righteous grandson, shall we say, right? Specifically, he is... Someone who engages in true worship. The one true and only God. And so therefore, he has abandoned idolatry. He maintains sexual purity. He pursues biblical justice among the people. He is free from sin by observing and obeying God's law. This righteous grandson. He saw and he learned from the folly of his father. The wickedness of his father's sin. He charted a different course. And so, God says, this righteous man's righteousness is upon him. He will live. And so through these three hypotheticals, Yahweh has systematically dismantled that well-worn proverb that the house of Israel was repeating. The one who eats sour grapes, that's the one who's going to have his teeth set on edge, not his son. The soul who sins shall die. That's... That's the summary. The soul who sins shall die. Now, there's one very important aspect of this righteous grandson that we really need to hone in on. 
Verse 14, suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins of his father, all the sins that his father has done, he sees and does not do likewise. That's what most English translations say. You have the double seeing. He sees all the sins, he sees and does not do them. And that the reason you have the double seeing is because the translators have followed what's called the Masoretic text of the Hebrew scriptures. That's good. But there's one interesting thing about this. There's actually a very significant textual variant. And what I mean is there are several Hebrew manuscripts. There's also the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was done in the 3rd century B.C. And there was also the Latin Vulgate. And all three of these translations, all of, and including the, the Hebrew manuscripts, all of these maintain this variant reading. What does it say? It says, this man, uh, the, the son, sees all the sins uh, that his father has done. He fears and does not do likewise. And I like that reading because it helps put this into perspective about what's really going on here. I believe that there is a temptation, especially among us, to think that if we are smart enough, if we're lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time, if we are somehow more spiritual, that if we have better advantages, that somehow we'll unlock, unlock the Rubik's Cube of faith in, in, in the grand scheme of things. When in fact, what is it that is motivating and driving this, grand, this righteous grandson? It is, I'm persuaded, his fear of Yahweh. We know Proverbs 9 and verse 10. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 111 verse 10 says the same thing. Proverbs 1 verse 7. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. And so it's not that this son is so smart in and of himself or that he is inherently better than dear old dad or that he's more spiritual or that he has a better upbringing given how ruthless his father was. I really doubt his home life was all that stellar. It is this righteous grandson's fear of Yahweh, which is motivating his serious and sober keeping of the law. Psalm 111 and verse 10, which I mentioned just a moment ago, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. It goes on to say, all those who practice the fear of Yahweh have good understanding. So it is evident that the father persisted in his wicked rebellion because he didn't fear the one to whom his soul belonged. Remember, this is what it all comes back to is verse 4. All souls are mine, says Yahweh, right? On the other hand, that wicked man's son, he sought righteousness from the one to whom his soul belonged. And so the father's wickedness is upon him. Verse 18, he dies for his sin. He dies in his sin. All that remains then would be a devil's hell. And in all of this, it must not be lost. God is the sovereign judge. And the judge of all the earth does what is right. There's an objection. There's a couple of objections as you get deeper into the chapter. And we'll... We'll pick up and we'll look at the, the conclusion of this chapter next week. But the first objection is right here in verse 19. 
You say, again, God talking to his people, you say, why shouldn't the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? That is to say, our, our sons suffer due to their father's sins. Look, look around. The present generation is suffering. Again, because of what they did, the fathers in the past. Again, the assumption is we're innocent. And that God is somehow unjustly holding us accountable for the sins of the past generations, for them, for the other people. And God's declaration to them is, look, when the son has done what is just and right, has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. In other words, God is saying, no, you've got it wrong. They're, you are not suffering for your father's sins. You are suffering because of your own sin. If your son does what is just and right, if he observes the whole law, he will live. And so the suffering indicates you're doing wrong. You're doing injustice. You're not keeping the law. That's why they suffer and they die. Oh, the heart is so deceitful. It is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. And it desperately searches for a way to cover over the multitude of sins. It's the fig leaf principle all the way back in Genesis. I've got to find a way to cover myself up. And it's no wonder that people, even today, continue to perpetuate that sin from the garden of trying to cover up our own unrighteousness and our own wickedness. Even today, they seek to make excuses and shift the blame and pass the buck and weasel out of personal responsibility rather than come face to face with their own darkness, come face to face with their own sins. And so, well, if we tear down enough statues, uh, statues and rewrite enough history, and uh, better yet, if we can destroy enough of it and get rid of it and, and eliminate all that, if we could just become maybe ahistorical, we might finally become a just society, except not really because we never can get rid of that sin, can we? This kind of secular Calvinism, as one person has called it, simply has no atonement to it. Not really. Not totally. This is why we need Ezekiel chapter 18. And why we need to see that God, as the sovereign and just God, points out and identifies to us our own blameworthiness. That we are accountable to God. That we don't get to blame others. And that we ourselves are not innocent. We have sinned. That kind of conviction, by the way, is a good thing. Verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? It's a hypothetical. Hypothetical question. It's a rhetorical question, actually. I have no pleasure. God is saying, I, I take no pleasure in that. It is, I'm not happy about it, in other words. Does it still happen? Because wicked people refuse to repent of their sins. Yes. And therefore, in justice and in righteousness, God passes judgment. And it is holy and it is right and it is just. But he takes no pleasure in it. Nor should we take any pleasure in it either. And we certainly should not 
take any pleasure in our own sin and wickedness. How can we live in it any longer? How can we? Knowing what God has done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's commit this to prayer. Confronted with your holy law and even your own holiness, Father, it once again exposes us for who we are. And yet, we rejoice in knowing that you have in Christ Jesus removed all of our sin. And that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us because of Jesus. Lord God, we pray that we would, with all the strength that you provide, pursue life and righteousness in all things to your glory. Lord God, if there are those here those watching via online who feel the weight and the conviction of their sin before you. Lord God, we pray that you would kindle within them an appetite and a desire, a fear, a holy reverence for you so that they would turn and live. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.